Welcome, storytellers and liberators. Today's show is especially important because we're dealing with a writing obstacle that goes beyond any obstacle that most of us have dealt with. We're going to talk about writing behind bars and specifically about a new book about writing that is designed for incarcerated writers. But I have to say that it's really for all writers, and it's designed that way as well. And it's all the more interesting as a writing book because of the way it addresses both reader groups and writer groups. And and because I think writing behind bars... You know, it's obviously a metaphor for many writers. So making it all the more real, you know, provides really kind of interesting creative illumination. It's it's definitely one of the more interesting and useful writing books that I've read in a long time. And it's called The Sentences That Create Us. And it draws on the unique insights of more than 50 contributors, including writers like Piper Kerman of Orange is the New Black who we've had on Right Minded, Reginald Dwayne Betts, Mitchell S. Jackson, Wilbert Rideau, and T. Kira Madden, who is joining us today, as well as many other brilliant writers. And, and what I think is interesting, Brooke, is the way the book provides introductions to the foundations of writing and discussions of craft, but it also goes beyond that to address trauma in writing because incarcerated writers have lived traumatic and dramatic lives and they're in a position of reckoning with their lives and discovering their truth. And they're often writing with more urgency and more need and more desire for survival than many of us who've lived more ordinary lives. It made me think back to our earlier episode with Piper Kerman, who has dedicated her life to working for prison reform, which includes teaching writing in prison. Yeah, it's an interesting topic. My gosh, and what a privilege the interview is going to be for all of you listeners. Um, you know, I think the thing that I came away from after listening to Piper's interview was just how the, uh, you know, all the experiences that people have that are cornerstones of their lives, right? And so with memoir in particular, there's this idea that you're made an expert by the fact of having lived your experience. And so obviously that's true with these incarcerated writers. They are default experts on life in prison or default experts on teaching in prison and being uh, adjacent to that life. You know, Piper had a 13 month prison term um, and undoubtedly that was a tremendously difficult 13 months to get through, but more than anything, it opened her eyes to the terrible treatment of women in prison and the gross inequities of the sentences bestowed upon people. And for reasons due to things we know, like skin color and lower socioeconomic levels. And so then when she got out of prison, it was her mission to do the prison reform work. And so I'm really inspired by people like her and like the guests that we have today, you know, because there's a lot of bringing awareness to these hugely important issues, you know, so much like Brian Stevenson, who wrote Just Mercy. And so I was just thinking about, you know, the takeaways from these kinds of shows that we're doing, you know, when you're saying more broadly, it's like the writing is supporting you as a person, but also the world around you to understand, you know, these incredibly moving issues that are so important, you know, a window into societal issues that need to be addressed and that certainly need reforming. So yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah. Piper's essay in the book is interesting because she talks about the necessity of telling the truth to tell a compelling story. And she discusses how to reveal the layers and contradictions in a person, which was really interesting. And I just want to read this one passage. She writes, I have students who have written tenderly about a parent in response to one writing prompt, only to share a terrifying story of abuse and neglect a few weeks later. Same parent. Both stories are true. Even the most flawed people are multidimensional. 
and those who have impacted our lives deserve full consideration in our writing. And this has been a running theme of our conversations about the power of writing, how it helps us live with those contradictions in people, and that those contradictions are usually at the heart of a good story, I think, but they're super difficult to write about and balance. And and I might posit, actually, that this is one of the main gifts that writing can give us, and an understanding of nuance and contradiction and a recognition of the messiness that goes into being human, really. And Brooke, I remember when we had Ashley Ford on, you talked about that as one of the main achievements of her memoir, Somebody's Daughter, the way she was able to balance the portrayal of her father, who was in prison for most of her life. Um, And she balanced that with the tenderness she gave him, even though he'd committed an atrocious crime and been an absent father. And it takes a certain depth of grace and forgiveness just to get to that place to be able to reconcile such contradiction in writing, I think. Yeah, it it absolutely does. Uh, And as you were talking, I was thinking about Ashley Ford and also about Lily Danzinger, who we just had Mm -hmm. on the podcast a couple weeks ago. Uh, You know, both of them do a stunning job with that balance that Piper's speaking to, right? In Ashley's case, her father was incarcerated, like you said, her whole life for a rape that he was guilty of committing. And, you know, speaking to Piper's work around prison reform, I certainly have very strong feelings about rapists, but a 30-year sentence is really something to behold, you know, and especially when it's looked at side by side with someone like Brock Turner, the Stanford swimmer, who was at the center of the Chanel Miller book, Know My Name, who got literally zero jail time. <laughs> hmm. So it's just something to look at, you know, a side note of sorts, but but really important as we're thinking about prison reform. But Ashley humanizes her father in such a way, you know, he's incredibly flawed, my goodness, but we all are, right? Some more visibly than others, to be sure. Uh, And in the case of Lily, I wanted to bring up her memoir to Negative Space because her parents were very loving and she professes to have had a happy childhood and they were addicted to heroin. And part of her memoir is coming to terms with the fact that her father undoubtedly died from drugs, even though the cause of his death was undetermined. And there's so much nuance in her writing as well, you know, as should be the case in all good character writing, because the goal is not to demonize or lionize the people in your memoirs, but it can be really hard to do, especially for the child narrator who might have idealized a missing parent, uh, you know, or maybe they're just thrashing around in rage on the other side of that coin, right? It's it's really tough to kind of bring the whole human to the picture. Um, you know, for Ashley Ford, her only images of her father were the ones that he just made her feel like the center of his universe. And so she had this narrow view of the man that he was. And then since he was behind bars, he wasn't outliving this dynamic life, right? So it's it's just important to think about. I, I really love what we're circling around here because, you know, next to that is this idea that there's this ripple effect when it comes to incarcerated people and the lives that are affected by it. But you could make that case too for memoirists, you know, for people who are dead or absent in any way, uh, because it it just has this effect on all of the players and the protagonist being you in particular. So it's it's just good stuff to be thinking about in your writing. There's so much in this book. And one, one of the things um, the book addresses is the need to develop writing communities in prisons and outside of prisons, of course. Um, but in prisons, that is just, I think this is something we can't imagine unless we've experienced it because writing in prison is difficult for a whole host of reasons. You know, um, in most prisons, people don't have access to the internet. They live in super noisy environments. 
They're subject to constant interruptions from their cellmates, from guards. And speaking of guards, their writing might even be read and censored by guards. In fact, incarcerated writers often, when they write, they need to think about who is going to read this in, in, in a different sense than I do, right? Because they, they need to think about if they need to mask the truth or not write about some things for fear of retribution or punishment. And it just makes me think of how much I take the privacy of my writing for granted and how much I need that privacy to be able to take risks and experiment and express myself and be vulnerable. And I would just write so entirely different if I knew someone might read what I wrote this morning. So if you think about how difficult it is to write in your life, imagine doing it in prison. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. Um, and I know I've shared this before. So some of our listeners know that Piper and I have actually gotten to know each other pretty well since she was a guest on this show. And we literally discovered that day that we're neighbors, like back to back, we share a gate <laughs> fence. <laughs> and we both have 11 year olds. So I do want to share a couple of other insights that I've gotten to know um, from her, you know, over this time of sharing. And she has told me, you know, yeah, it's not safe. Like you have to consider that if you're writing something that could be grabbed out of your hands or stolen from your locker. You know, that content, if someone else read it, could be used against you too. If you're writing a story of your upbringing or anything that's true, you need to be guarded. And and it, I, so I just think it's so true. This lack of privacy is, is a big deal in prison. Um, and Piper has shared with me too, how in her classes, it's not at all uncommon that someone would be there. And then after some months, they would just bust out this most intense story, you know, usually of a trauma or an abuse that they endured. And it would just be like so profound that you could hear a pin drop in the room and the other prisoner classmates would be so captivated. And then that student, having done the work that they came to do, never comes back to class. Mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting phenomenon. You know, she said it's, as I said, not uncommon. So Piper's take on this is that they've processed something that needed to be processed, did the work, got received and witnessed. And I definitely think that could be true for some. But I also just wanted to note the flip side of this, I think, is that some of them maybe didn't come back because of shame, even fear. Mm -hmm. You know, like I have people that I'm close to in my life with deep abuse issues in their past, you know, and even sharing out loud on social media or with a therapist will trigger these like deep shame responses. So, you know, I, I have so much, um, there is so much value, I should say, in getting the work out into the world and I, and to say it out loud. Um, and I think each time you do this, your shame gets a little bit less and it gets easier. But it's a lot that's going on inside of a person who's sharing their story. And so I just wanted to note that double-edged sword, you know, of writing personal narrative, which is it's as scary as hell and it can bring up a lot of shame. And it's also as powerful as hell and it can really set people free. Yeah, and that's what we've discovered at, at NaNoWriMo. And we we don't work directly in prisons like like Pen America, but but we've been fortunate to work with Pen America to bring National Novel Writing Month to incarcerated writers. And and it's so interesting to read the testimonials and the feedback we hear from writers because they speak to exactly what you said, Brooke. And one thing which I think and hope helps that is that that you know this helps build writing communities in those those um, prisons. So speaking of that, uh, building writing communities, uh, I, want, I just wanted to read uh, Derek Trumbo, who was one of the incarcerated writers who took part in National Novel Writing Month. I think he's done it two or three years now, and he's he's an amazing writer. Um, he writes such touching, wonderful essays. Um, and so I just wanted to read one paragraph 
about that kind of writing community coming together and under difficult circumstances. And he says, with a combined 75 plus years spent behind the same razor wire topped fence line together, we were virtually strangers. 30 days brought us together, broke us, exposed us, and laid our innermost flaws bare. But our shared hopes, dreams, and ambitions of being acknowledged in even the slightest of ways proved a beacon in the darkness of our incarceration. Though some of us may never leave this physical place alive, perhaps our stories will breathe life, understanding, and inspiration outside the confines of our present circumstances, even if just to allow an introvert the chance to savor a warm, friendly smile. And, and that phrase, ambitions of being acknowledged in even the slightest of ways, proved a beacon in the darkness of our incarceration. You know, it really struck me because one of the reasons we are who we are as people is through our stories. You know, we, we write to share our experiences of being alive in a very, very fundamental way, which is just such a crucial part of being human, almost as important as breath itself. So if we don't give people the ability to tell their stories, I'd say that's cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah, I agree, Grant. Uh, so many prisons have actually cut back on prison programs and education over the years, which minimizes the chance of rehabilitation and change. And, you know, maximizing these healing powers of expression and reflection is what they want to be doing, you know, if we're thinking about rehabilitation and the hope for having creativity and, and hope through the prison sentence, but also beyond on the outside. So we will be back to hear more about this and the work that PEN America is doing right after this short break. Welcome back, everybody. I'm excited to introduce today's guests. Kate Meissner's poems, comics, essays, and curation have appeared in a bunch of great publications such as The Rumpus, Pank, Harper's Bazaar, Literary Hub, and The Guardian, among others. She spends her days as Director of Prison and Justice Writing at PEN America, where she edited the book we're going to focus on today, The Sentences That Create Us, Crafting a Writer's Life in Prison. And then I'm also happy to introduce T. Kira Mahalena Madden, who is a writer, photographer, and amateur magician living in Charleston, South Carolina. And T. Kira is the author of Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls, a memoir, which was a New York Times editor's choice selection and a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle John Leonard Prize. And she's also the founding editor-in-chief of No Tokens, a magazine of literature and art. Welcome, Kates and T. Kira. Thanks so much for having us, Grant. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. Uh, well, Kate, I wanted to ask you a, a bit about the book and about life in prison uh, as well. And, and, and in the foreword, Dwayne Betts uh, writes this striking passage. He says, there are not many things people can become while in prison that garners the public's respect. Even for those coming inside with skills, the opportunities to make use of them are scarce. Electricians, plumbers, educators, engineers all have their skills atrophy in the mundanity of count time and chow call. And I don't think many of us truly know what life in prison is like. And I know that prison life has been often mischaracterized in movies and TV shows. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what life is, in prison is like, how people atrophy, and why PEN America has a prison writing program. You know, life in prison differs depending on the prison and jail or jail you have to be incarcerated in. So there are some prisons like San Quentin Prison in California that is sort of strangely rife with programming and a newspaper and creative writing programs and restorative justice programs. And their classes meet in an art studio that looks like a New York City art studio almost. 
And then uh, you juxtapose that with a prison outside a major city that's in the middle of the woods or in, a, in the middle of nowhere, and it becomes a programming desert. So the experience varies, but essentially I think prison is a lot more boring and a lot less sensational than what we see on TV. And there's a sense of what do I do with all of this time? How do I move through this endless series of days, especially for folks who have uh, sentences like life without parole or, you know, a couple decades in. So the reason that PEN America started the program uh, actually had nothing to do with, with, with boredom in prison. It had to do really with the lack of agency in prison. So what goes hand in hand with this sense of, of time and the endlessness of time is uh, the punitive environment. So it, it's a hard space uh, to make relationships in that are meaningful because it's a space of survival. Uh, people are also, you know, under, uh, as we know, 24-hour watch. Uh, folks have no privacy. There's very little agency. And in fact, I think, Grant, a lot of what we see in the TV shows and movies, even if it's sensationalized, is not that far off. Those are aspects of prison life. There is violence there is the shower scenes uh, without, you know, which really tells you that lack of privacy. There is a sense that you have to protect yourself at all times. There are prison gangs based on race. These things all happen, but on day-to-day basis, it's not like you're walking through a minefield that's so intense every moment of every day. So I think the lack of agency is the biggest reason. I don't think, I know it's the biggest reason that PEN America started this program 40 years ago on the heels of the Attica uprising. My predecessors uh, used this opportunity of watching prisoners in Attica prison strike and riot to say, you know, writing is also a legitimate form of power and especially in a place like prison. So the program came out of this need to say, what can people in prison actually have agency over? And like any of us, it's our sense of personal responsibility, how we move through the world, how we work with our gifts, how we develop ourselves. And uh, from there, what we've grown into is a series of programs that look at not just uh, the personal development aspect of writing, but really what incarcerated writers have to teach the rest of us on the outside and why they should be in conversation with folks in the outside world. This is why we need more stories. You know, uh, prison is an American experience at this point with these sheer numbers of people who've been incarcerated and the people that uh, their lives touch, family and friends. I read Just Mercy a while back, and I just couldn't believe some of the stories in that book, specifically about a women's prison in Alabama that was double capacity with inmates. And then he shared stories of young women convicted of killing their stillborns, uh, late term miscarried babies because they were poor, black and uneducated, and they had no one to advocate for them. To your point, I mean, this is just one of the many reasons that we need these kinds of stories and why we need people to write them, of course. So I thought this could be directed to both of you. Kate, perhaps you could share about the background and the goals for the book and how you put it together. And then Takira, I'd love to hear about your experience. Um, you know, how were you approached to contribute to this, you know, and maybe you two can kind of talk in tandem about how an anthology like this gets put together. Yeah, I was so grateful when Kate's reached out and it wasn't the first time Kate's had reached out to me before um, back in New York City when I was still living there to participate in a live reading of work written by incarcerated writers, which we held in the East Village. It was such a beautiful, beautiful performance series. Kate's has been doing this work for a long time, someone I really admire and look up to. So I was just 
thrilled uh, to contribute anything to this anthology, which is just so beautiful and just covers so many bases. I was really excited to contribute a writing exercise in several steps with different possibilities of that exercise. I am a teacher um, when I'm not working with incarcerated writers or in reentry programs. I'm also a teacher on the college level. I've taught in high school as well and graduate school. So I'm kind of all over the place. And I'm always reaching for, I guess, building and designing exercises that might transcend uh, the space that one is in. Um, This is something I've been thinking about even more in these past few years in the pandemic, which is not to say my experience staying inside is anything like the experience of others, those who are incarcerated or in reentry programs, but thinking about space and thinking about accessibility and thinking about what can help us imagine our ways to other places in time, in space. Um, So I, I contributed an exercise about objects and the, the power of objects and how, whether it's an imagined object or an object from your memory or an object in your physical space can allow one to transcend time and space. And just thinking about how that's possible through the, through the power of writing and imagination as well. Thanks to Kira. I'm a huge fan of Kira. I read her book and, uh, and, and through that and through her personal story and through her bio learned about her work through the walls and, and in prisons and reentry programs. So, uh, you know, the selfish part of putting this book together was getting to work with all of the people that I highly respect and admire. So it goes right back. And my background is that I taught in prisons uh, for a number of years before coming to Penn Creative Writing. So I've visited at this point over 25 prisons across the U.S., prisons and jails, and met tons of writers and aspiring writers. And so putting this book together really was looking at the spread of my community and the community that already existed at Penn, uh, looking at who had been repeatedly winning our prison writing contest over the years, looking at who was writing to us with uh, really exciting proposals, looking at who was coming our, through our Writing for Justice Fellowship from prison, and starting to really build relationships and get to know the powerful acts that people had created uh, in nearly impossible conditions. So, Pen America had a handbook for many years that I admired and would send to my students called the Handbook for Writers in Prison. It was a short guide, about 100 pages, tiny text that went to the basics of creative writing. And I had a great admiration for it and knew it was passed hand to hand in prisons informally and knew that people held it very sacred and marked it up. And I loved that it was an initiative that sent these books for free. But what it was missing was a sense of why is this for people in prison? It was, it was sort of like what differentiates it from any other craft text aside from that it's condensed and all these different mediums are in it. So I had a sense that we could really meet the era where mass incarceration is a word that is a household word at this point and wasn't, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, certainly. So Now we had the opportunity to look at this through the pedagogical lens of who's the best person to tell these stories. And my sense was that it was going to be mostly people with justice involvement, but it was also going to be people who are allies like myself to people in prison and are going to actually help these works and words get into the public sphere. And the book is in three sections. The first section is is the basics of craft. So, you know, we have a poetry section, a journalism section, et cetera. 
But what makes it different from other books is that there's a real lens of working through the walls. How do you write through the trauma of prison? How do you pitch a journalism article? And should you mention your crime to get it out of the way? These kind of things that only people in prison really understand what's necessary, what's going to be necessary for their peers. Uh, the second section is crafting a writer's life in prison. This looks at everything from how did I wrote in, and staged an original play in prison to um, how do I get copyrights to how to use poetry as advocacy when you're going to the parole board. So really looking at the capital W writer publishing through the walls down to how can I use writing to become you know, a fuller person. Uh, and the final section of the book is on building writing community. And it's anchored in an essay by Zeke Caliagiri that looks at developing self-directed writing collectives, incarcerated led with some tips and rounded out by all of these resources of writing prompts like TKIRAs. Thank you so much for that um, summary of the book. And, and the writing community portion uh, intrigues me a lot because that's a lot about what this show is about. And we had uh, Joe Loya, who is a writer who discovered himself in prison as a writer. He had this interesting epiphany he told us about on a, on a past episode of Right Minded. And after he had this epiphany, which happened to him while he was in solitary, he reached out to the writer Richard Rodriguez. And they had this really interesting long-term correspondence, you know. And I think, I think Richard Rodriguez operated as Joe's um, mentor, essentially, and answered that question that you posed earlier, how do I become a writer? You know, I think, I think mentorship is, is not just about helping someone with the craft of writing or even the connections. It's largely about the, the belief that you are a writer and your story matters. And so I think it's so interesting that you've positioned this book as a tool to help people form writing communities, especially behind bars. And I'm intrigued by that. Plus, like, I think there are 75,000 copies are going to go out to incarcerated writers. Is that right? Yes, that's right. The, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation beautifully funded us to send 75,000 copies inside. And I will say within the first month of the book being out, we have 50,000 requests. So if anybody is listening who wants more copies to go in prison, there is a great hunger for this text uh, and we will need more copies. <laughs> I had to put my director plug in. You know how it goes, Grant. Yeah, yeah. Got to do it. <laughs> That's amazing. Wonderful for all the people listening to know that too. So um, Takira, we'd love for you to tell us a bit about your work teaching in correctional facilities. Um, and I'm curious if you too have been a mentor to writers like uh, Richard was to Joe. Sure. So I grew up with a few family members incarcerated and when I went to graduate school in 2010, there was a program set up called Write to Write out of Sarah Lawrence College. Um, some writing programs have facilitator opportunities like this or teaching opportunities outside of the school. And it was really interesting to me. I did not know what to expect. I didn't know at that point in my life if teaching or facilitating is something I wanted to do or anything I might be good at. I didn't know how to approach it. I went through some training which I'm, I'm so glad I went through that training, but I wish I had Kate's book for that training. And I started as a facilitator, a creative writing facilitator across the genres and immediately felt like, wow, this is, this is what I want to do with my life. This is really, this feels really important to me. And it's exactly what you've already touched on. It's not about coming in in the very cinematic way we see sometimes with a notebook and pen and teaching people how to build a perfect sentence or write a story. It's about that encouragement. It's about that radical encouragement that your story matters. Here's how 
I'm going to say how to work through trauma, but engaging with trauma in different ways creatively does have a healing component to it, does help you transcend this physical landscape that we've been talking about. Um, And just reiterating to many people who have been told always that nothing they have to say or nothing they can make matters, that it does that it does. It, it pushes the needle. It changes the world. And I realized soon that that was my role as facilitator, not to have a red pen hovering over something someone wrote. So as much for me as it was for them, maybe more so. So that first year it was creative writing. The second year I became a program coordinator. So I managed more programs. Um, I started with a program there called Mommy Reads, uh, which was a literacy program, not only for mothers incarcerated, but for their children in foster care. So we were able to get permission to bring recording devices in, build children's books with mothers and have them actually read them in their voice, record them and bring the recordings to the children in foster care. So they would learn to read and also have this connection via voice and word and story. And that was just incredible, not only building the children's books, but the ability to to work on performance in that way and then to connect to these children outside of the walls, too. Um, When I finished, uh, that was at Valhalla Correctional Facility. I started working with reentry programs uh, in New York City, and I was originally hired as an education coordinator, which meant a GED teacher. So I was teaching back to uh, grammar and, you know, everything on the GED. And I realized they didn't really have something set up that was similar to what I had been doing in the jails. So I thought about how I could bring that curriculum into these homeless shelters and these reentry programs. And I did that. A lot of that is volunteer work. Um, I know not everyone is able to do that, but if you can, most of these programs are always looking for volunteers to just, if they don't exist, just to bring in these ideas and say, hey, how about a writing workshop? How about a, a book club? How about setting up a reading list and we can you know, gather some books that we can contribute to the center? So I had a a reading and writing club as well as a photography club. So I got a bunch of disposable cameras uh, donated. We ran around the town and took pictures and then worked on narratives based on these pictures that we had developed and set up a whole gallery show for these people at the end, which was really fun. So that's my basic background. Um, I think Kate shows us too that some people have this idea that in order to help or to connect with incarcerated people, one has to be able to step in the walls. And that's not always the case. There are so many ways to connect, to build correspondence, to build support um, for people who need it, whether in reentry programs or in jails and prisons. And that might mean writing letters, um, you know, supporting one by editing their work or just going on a local level. Um, I was recently in Beacon, New York for a year going to the local bookstore and seeing that they set up the Beacon Prison Program where they would take book requests from the local jails. And then we would help fulfill those book requests and just send them out. There's usually something to be done, even if that means you are the person to step in and create it. If it's not established, establish it. And now we have a great guide to do that. Absolutely. One one thing that impresses me about the book that I think our listeners should understand is that even though it's designed as a book for incarcerated writers, it's a book for all writers. 
And I think what's so cool, I really enjoyed reading all of the writing exercises. They were so illuminating. And and so since we've alluded to yours, Tikira, I would love to have you tell our listeners why you chose this exercise, which has to do with magical objects. And I want to hear about your, your life as an amateur magician somehow as part of this. And, and then what it is, why, why this uh, exercise is, is uh, effective. So I grew up, my, my father was a compulsive gambler. He was a poker player and we, we ended up in Las Vegas a lot for his gambling addiction. Um, and I was a kid, I couldn't really hang out in the casinos with him. So instead I spent my days in the magic shops in Las Vegas and you know how even in the hotels or on the streets, they have kind of like the schlocky magic going on. I would just hang out with these magicians as a kid and, um, I promise it relates, but I, I, I go back to that. I'm glad you asked that question because I do believe sometimes our first sparks of narrative or our first stories we see, or the first stories we experience are those that stay with us and those that can be accessed no matter where you are. Um, maybe it's a story you were told growing up. Maybe it's a mythology that you believed. Maybe it was a game that you played or the story you made up of the woods outside your house and, you know, the monsters or fairies who live there, whatever it is, those first sparks, I think, carry something that we can use always. For me, that was street magic and hotel magic. Um, and the terms used for illusion magic, like teleportation, transformation, disappearance, like these are actual writing craft terms that we hear all the time. Defamiliarization, hold something in your hand, you open your hand, it's something else. Uh, I think this is what we what we aim for with art making in general, like some sort of transformation in front of our eyes that feels surprising, um, which is to say that I still hold I still hold such reverence for those first illusions and that that joy and that surprise. And I try to bring that with me through um, all my work as a facilitator or a teacher or a writer. So the magic of objects, the prompt that I use in this book that I use in classrooms everywhere is kind of exactly that. How do you take a mundane object and allow it to teleport you or move you through time in a way into a world that you either imagine or a world that you remember, a memory, a person, a smell, um, I think sometimes we think, oh, we have to be out in the world and eavesdropping and note taking and recording to build a story. But that's not really the case. We can hold a pen in our hand or a piece of brick or a stone, or we can imagine something and ask, like, what metaphorical properties does a stone have or what shape does a shell have? Asking questions like, what is the shape? What could a metaphor be? What does it remind me of? What does it feel like or smell like? I think in the, in the version that I wrote in this book, I gave a few different versions of this prompt, but the general idea is an imagined or a real object, thinking about it, meditating on it, working on just describing it before asking yourself, where could it travel in time and space? Um, where could an object go where it's never been? And what knowledge would it carry there? Or where does the object come from way before my life? way after my life, moving forward and back in time, allowing oneself to move freely, I think, beyond linear time or static space and asking how the shape of something or something small can kind of be expansive uh, in the hands of our imaginations. That was beautiful, Takira. Thank you. 
Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, Kate, we want to end with you um, and a question. Well, something you wrote in the book that says this book ultimately is about getting people home from prison metaphorically and literally. So could you finish today by telling us what you mean by that? I actually think this is best illustrated by reading a clip. And and I, I think there's two ways to look at this. One, coming home. You know, some people are never coming home. It's few. It's few. Most people in prison do come back home to community. But coming home is through the mind, really, right? I mean, that's what I mean by that, metaphorically speaking. So how do we actually use writing to connect families through the walls, as Tikira mentioned, to bring a sense of connection back, you know, on a really practical level, but also on a metaphorical level in the mind. Uh, I just did an interview with James Kilgore for Truth Out. He doesn't put anything about himself in the interview, but I'm going to blow up his spot a little bit. He was a he has a fascinating story in general, from being a revolutionary to going to Africa to being extricated from Africa and and put into a prison in in California for a number of years. And he said he began writing fiction first because he needed to find a way back to his family in South Africa, being in this California prison. And he did it through recreating the world he had left uh, in in his writing and in his imagination. But I think that moreover, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, the feel good parts of writing in this talk today. But I was just on a call right before this with about 100 public defenders talking about the power of narrative and the power of storytelling and working with their clients and people in prison to co-write stories, help them share their stories, et cetera. And I shared this quote from Wilbert Rideau and Wilbert Rideau, I think, really nails it. Uh, the power of of writing, the actual power of writing literally in the world to bring people home. Wilbert is a fascinating story as well. He has not given an interview in 15 years since coming home from prison. He said, I'm done with that. But for this book, he said, because of who it's for. And it brings a taste of the book. And because like Grant said, this this is a book really for anybody who's interested in, in storytelling. I think part of this conversation as well is looking at writers in prison, not just as people to mentor and support, but people to mentor us and support our human journey and our journey as activists, advocates, and writers. So Wilbert was uh, on death row at age 18 at Angola, the largest prison in the world. And Wilbert Rideau in the 70s was on death row, seventh grade education, taught himself to read and write, Black man, through reading what was available, which he says in this interview are white cowboy books. And when he he got off death row and and went into gen pop, general population in the prison, uh, he was told black people can't write. So you cannot work on the newspaper, even though he developed all these skills in in solitary confinement off of his own grit and self-determination. So he organized a group of lifers uh, or he he was asked by a group of uh, the lifers association, people with life sentences to create a magazine for them. So what he created was an all black publication to say, hey, these are all black writers. Let me show you how we can write. When the prison uh, mandatorily desegregated in the 70s, the warden came directly to him and said, I want you now to be the editor of the Angolite, which he made a national sensation of a prison newspaper. He was traveling to news conferences with a unarmed guard around the state. They wanted him to wear a suit. He said, no, I'm going to wear my prison clothes because I am incarcerated. I am a prisoner. I am not going to be your representative and pretend otherwise. And he ended up becoming a, a fresh air correspondent with Terry Gross from prison. I mean, this man lived a phenomenal life. Now he's a death row consultant. So I got to give the background to Wilbur because he I think his inclusion in the book says so much about what's in these pages. But 
what are the tangible effects of writing and getting people home? Here's what Wilbert said, and we'll close with this. I think it's, it's uh, really the perfect closing. He said, we got people out of prison. We got rules changed. We got processes changed. Hell, we got the method of death penalty changed. In fact, the photographs we published in the Angolite showed the mutilated body of Robert Wayne Williams, who had been executed in Louisiana's electric chair, were made available to the general media, but they wouldn't publish them. The Columbia Journalism Review is the only publication, to my knowledge, to republish our pictures for the general public. Naturally, I'm very proud to have done what other editors feared doing. The best things we did were the stories that educated people, changed perspectives, made a difference in the lives of others. I remember when Jane Bankston, who headed mental health services for the Louisiana Department of Corrections, visited my office the next day after I was denied parole. She wanted me to accompany her to the prison hospital. There she walked up to an inmate lying in a bed and began talking to him. I soon realized he was blind. My depression was quickly replaced by anger at a justice system that would put a blind man in a dangerous maximum security prison. I shook my head, looked at her and said, is this the reason you brought me here? She nodded saying, I wanted you to meet Alvin. Before leaving the hospital, I told him that son of a bitch, the governor wouldn't let me out, but I'm going to make sure you get out of here. You can count on that. I returned to my office incensed and wrote a story about Alvin Anderson. The Louisiana media picked up the story. The state pardon board got interested and Alvin went home along with several other needlessly confined prisoners. And I want to impress that, you know, there's this idea that this is uh, a lovely thing we do and it's a feel good thing we do and it's rehabilitative, but um, and it is, and it is all those things. And it is feel good and it is wonderful. And so much can be gained from it. Uh, like Tikira, teaching in prisons changed my life. I wanted it to be the center of my life. I learned as much as I was giving for certain. But I also want to impress that the next step is that generating stories from writers in prison is more than that. It, it, it can be life or death. So uh, yeah, I guess I'll close with that. In, intense note. Thank you both so much. Absolutely. You brought us home perfectly to remind us of how powerful stories can change the world. Thank you so much for having us. And thank you, Tikira, one of my idols for um, being here. Thank you so much. This is wonderful. We'll be right back with today's book trend. Brooke, this week's book trend is about something so fascinating and big. It just caught me totally by surprise, and I'm, I'm just obsessed with it. You know, it's sometimes easy to think of publishing as a staid and stodgy industry because on the traditional side, I think it can be so fundamentally conservative in its appetite for risk or experimentation. But there's actually so much disruption happening outside of traditional publishing's castle walls, and, and often that disruption is being spurred on by individual authors. And, and this thing that I'm obsessed by is that recently... Brandon Sanderson ran a Kickstarter campaign. Brandon is a, is a fantasy author. And the campaign shot north of $28 million in two weeks, making it the biggest campaign, at least for now, in Kickstarter history. So this is really groundbreaking. So I'm curious what your take on that is for, for publishers in general, Brooke. 
Yeah, I mean, I read this story and it's wild. <laughs> I mm-hmm. think um, that what I take away from that as a publisher is that he did not just strike up a Kickstarter campaign and make $28 million, right? Like this was years <laughs> in the making, um, you know, and, and for something like that to happen, like he is actually himself a full service publishing machine. Mm-hmm. You know, he has merchandise and a warehouse to fulfill all the promises of that campaign. And most authors, of course, are not set up to do something like that. And in the article we read, they were comparing Comparing him to James Patterson and Stephen King. So, you know, these are guys with tremendous reach. But Brandon Sanderson, because he's writing fantasy, also has a lot of cool places to go with his merchandising. And so that struck me as well. Like genre writers really do have an edge that way when it comes to creativity about actual giveaways in the Kickstarter campaigns. Yeah, and just to kind of, if viewers don't know or haven't participated in Kickstarter, it's 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 a, a crowdsourced funding platform. And basically the way things happen is the Kickstarter backers pledge money up front and in return get specified goods, you know, tied to their tier level of their pledge. So a higher pledge, you get more stuff. And in Brandon Sanderson's case, he offered backers four new novels as digital ebooks, audiobooks, or physical copies based on donation levels. And then people who spent over a certain threshold also received eight monthly subscription boxes um, related to, to, to Sanderson's work. And so crowdfunding isn't new for authors, but it's never, never, never come anywhere close to anyone reaching $28 million. And I guess for me, Brooke, I wonder how many other authors are going to try to do something similar, which really takes publishing books out of publishers' hands, you know, and since the publishing industry is is centered on, you know, these blockbuster books as their, their primary profit center, I'm just curious what's going to have, happen in the next five to ten years. But, you know, I also think, like you said, I mean, Brandon Sanderson also has his own business intact, ready to go to ship out all these books and to handle all the processing, which is a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, needless to say, yes. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I love Kickstarter and other crowd funding campaigns have been around like that, but Kickstarter's had the most longevity and we actually do partner with them. But what I love about this story is that I'm personally very interested in destigmatizing the idea of crowdfunding for publishing in general. So I think someone like Brandon will go a long way toward mainstreaming the idea that it's actually a really great way to fund creative endeavors because mm-hmm. people are hand wringing over the cost and then they feel embarrassed to ask people for money. But if you do it in this entrepreneurial way where you're giving people something that they they want and that you know your readers are actually supporting you because they want to support you and that is a really important concept behind the whole model absolutely and i think i think what happened with brandon sanderson was beyond the giveaways that he was giving i think it was a sort of viral contagion that people just wanted to participate in this event as a fan um, and just word spread and people love doing things like that. They get excited. And so I think even though, you know, for a smaller author or more regular author, you know, obviously it's not going to be, you can't reach those heights, but I think you can be very savvy and very smart. And like you said, I mean, there've been plenty of books that have been funded by crowdfunding. And so I think it's something to think about destigmatizing and to experiment with. And every time I've done anything online, I've usually done something more related to fundraising uh, for nonprofits, but I've been so touched and kind of overwhelmed by by the number of people uh, who I barely know in life who will contribute to that. And I think the same thing happens with crowdfunding too. You'd be amazed at how many people want to support you. 
And we are those people here. We want to support you with with uh, more right-minded podcasts. So we are here every week. We'll be here next week. So keep tuning in on your favorite podcasting platform. And we look forward to talking more about writing and creating with you next week. Thank you.